Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. On today's episode, I'm talking about John Cassavetti's 1977 film, Opening Night. This was the first Cassavetti's film that I ever watched, and I saw it almost a decade ago when I was becoming a cinephile and getting interested in art house cinema. It's about an actress named Myrtle Gordon, played by the magnificent Jenna Rollins, who witnesses the death of one of her fans and begins to spiral into a breakdown as she also struggles to do a play that forces her to confront her feelings about aging and the passing of time. Revisiting this film was a really intense experience for me that I didn't quite expect, and this episode got more personal than I thought it would. Of course, I talk all about why I love this film and I go into Jenna's performance, but I also talk about some really complicated, messy, overwhelming feelings that I have been having since I turned 30 last year in 2019. And I also dig into how women can feel anxiety about getting older in a world that worships youth. So I talk about all that and I talk about much more. So there is a lot in this episode. I hope you like it. And please be aware there are spoilers in this episode as well. If you'd like to support the work I'm doing, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can access extra episodes, vote in polls, and much more. Go to patreon.com slash herheadinfilms for more information. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadinfilms. You can also review the podcast on iTunes. Please give me five stars. Tell your friends and followers about Her Head and Films, or you could follow me on social media and interact with me on there in a positive way. I love getting messages from all of you, and I love interacting with you. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter. There are links to all my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode. I'd like to tell you about one of my favorite streaming sites that I've been loving for a while now. It's called Ovid. That's O-V-I-D. And it features some of my favorite art house and independent films. The site is a partnership between several art house distributors, including Icarus Films, Grasshopper Film, and Women Make Movies. There are a wide variety of films in Ovid's catalog, from French thrillers to documentaries about history and the arts. Now, more than ever, I think we need films that help us understand the world around us, and I think that's something that Ovid provides. On the site, you can watch films by some of the greatest directors of all time, including Chris Marker, Claire Denis, Patricio Guzman, and many, many more. Ovid has hundreds of films that you can explore. I really think those of you who listen to and enjoy this podcast would absolutely love this streaming site. You can use the code CINEMA to get your first month for free. Go to ovid.tv, that's O-V-I-D, TV to start watching. And in the show notes of this episode, I also have a link to a curated selection of my favorite films on the site. So now I'm going to share with you all of my thoughts and very intense feelings about John Cassavetti's opening night.
This is my second episode about a John Cassavetes film. I've only seen three of his films, A Woman Under the Influence, Opening Night, and Gloria, but he's one of those directors that I certainly want to explore more of his body of work. My other episode about a Cassavetes film is A Woman Under the Influence, and that's episode 65. I don't want to rehash things that I already talked about in that episode. So for that episode, I talked more about John Cassavetes as a person, as a director, and I talked about his relationship with Jenna Rollins because I love her performance in that film. So I don't want to go back over all of that. If you're interested in that information, check out that episode. I start to talk about his life and career and his relationship with Jenna around the 15 minute mark. What I thought would be better is for me to use this episode to just talk about the film opening night and to focus on that. Besides, I couldn't find a lot of behind the scenes information about opening night. I found a little bit. This film was released through the Criterion Collection, along with several other John Cassavetes films, like in a box set. I would love to own that box set, personally. There were some extras that I explored, and interviews that I watched, interviews that I read, and all of my sources will be in the show notes of this episode, and I'll refer to that research throughout my analysis of the film, but I thought it would be better to just exclusively focus on the film itself because this is my favorite John Cassavetes film. Most people would probably say A Woman Under the Influence. I think it's one of his most famous and critically acclaimed films, and I feel like Opening Night kind of gets forgotten. I was very impressed with this film the first time I watched it in 2012. That is when I first saw it, and I have not watched it since. So it's been almost a decade since I first saw this film. This was my introduction to John Cassavetes. I was absolutely in love, and I'm still in love with this film, and I do prefer it over A Woman Under the Influence. And I'll tell you why. A Woman Under the Influence is a brutal film. And not that opening night is not brutal, but there's something about a woman under the influence, as powerful as it is, and as magnificent as Jenna's performance is. I don't want to go back and watch it again. And I might have said that in my episode about it. It's such an intense experience. It's It was hard to watch at times. With opening night, I liked revisiting it. I liked going back into this world. And it could be because of my interest in acting and in actors and in the world that actors inhabit. I'm actually drawn to films like that. A while back, I created this list of films that are about actors because I find it very interesting. I love that this film is set in the theater. I like the, the charge and the electricity that that gives it, the scenes in front of the audience. While I think Jenna's performance in A Woman Under the Influence is stunning, and I do think it's a great film. I'm not putting it down or diminishing it. I did an entire episode about it that's like two hours long. I love that film. Opening Night is my favorite. And I think it's also because it was my first John Cassavetes film. I think that sometimes the first film that we see by a director can have a huge impact on the way we react to that director. If we fall in love with their work, if we watch more of them. I know that I personally have directors that I have had a really hard time connecting to and getting into. I'm not going to name them 
because some of them are art house darlings that everybody loves and I'd rather not get any kind of hate for that. I go my own way when it comes to film sometimes. I have idiosyncratic taste. Many of you know this. I don't actually love all the actors and actresses and directors that a lot of cinephiles do but I keep my mouth shut online because I don't want to deal with the hate. And I keep my mouth shut on this podcast too because I don't want to get flack or feedback from people. Because people can be a bit, people can get angry, right? They can take it personally when you don't like the things that they like or the, the films that they like. So I just keep it to myself. But I will say there are quite famous directors that I just can't get into. And I don't know if it's because I saw the wrong film by by them or I haven't seen the right film. I actually take it very seriously when people ask me for film recommendations. I feel a lot of pressure sometimes. I mean, say somebody comes to you and says, where should I start with Ingmar Bergman? Where should I start with Andrei Tarkovsky? Where should I start with Agnes Varda? What would you tell them? And this is something I think about sometimes. What is the entry point? Because that first film that somebody watches by a director can have a major impact. Because I know myself that it's affected me. That if I watch the wrong film by a director, I don't want to see more of their films because I don't want to waste time watching films that I don't like by a director that I don't like. I think it's worth thinking about it and reflecting on it. Like, what is the first film by a director that you've seen? And how did it affect you? And the power of that first film. Because you can either watch the right film or you can watch the wrong film. And I feel like I got really lucky with Opening Night. I don't know if I would have been open to A Woman Under the Influence. I think that would have been a very difficult difficult first film to watch by John Cassavetes because it is heavy. It is brutal. It is difficult. Opening night has a lightness about it at times. It is heavy. Don't get me wrong. It's about a woman falling apart and having a breakdown. It's about very weighty issues like aging, but it also has this levity in some of the scenes when the play is being done when the audience is laughing at stuff, when Jenna and John at the very end are goofing off and improvising and all of those things and being silly. So there are moments that are funny. There are moments that are a bit lighter and it just has this life, this electricity, maybe because it's in the theater. I'm fascinated by the relationship between the women in this film. I'm fascinated by Myrtle's relationship with Sarah Good, the playwright. I'm fascinated by Myrtle's relationship with Nancy, the girl who dies at the beginning of the film. So there's these relationships between women that also fascinate me. I love the character of Myrtle. I'm just going to be honest. Like, I think I prefer the character of Myrtle to the character of Mabel in A Woman Under the Influence. Of course, there's no need to pit them against each other and compare them. I don't know why I am. More because I have that previous episode. And I'm just thinking about these two films. They're both about women. They're both about complicated, messy women. Women falling apart. Women having very difficult experiences in their lives. So I do think there are some comparisons there. And they're two of the three Cassavetes films that I've seen. But Opening Night was my first Cassavetes and I think it was the perfect entry point. I just fell in love with this film. I was haunted by this film. I know I say that word a lot that I'm haunted by a film. That's almost like my criterion 
for choosing a film to talk about. Does it haunt me? Does it get under my skin? Does it get into my system and I can't get it out? And there is something about Myrtle Gordon, just like there was something about Mabel when I talked about her. You know, Mabel is struggling struggling with mental illness. That resonated with me. Myrtle Gordon is struggling with aging. She's struggling with alcoholism and addiction, right? But she's also a powerful woman and a fascinating woman. So intriguing, I think. And and I believe this is Jenna's, one of Jenna's best performances. She's just so hypnotic and mesmerizing on screen. So I'm really glad that I saw opening night first. And I guess I would encourage you, the listener right now, to think about the first films by directors that you saw. Your first Bergman, your first Varda, your first Rosalini or De Sica, your first whatever, whoever your favorite filmmakers are and to think about how that affected you and to think about what if you what if that hadn't been the first film by them that you'd seen what if you'd seen another one that you didn't connect with as much and how that could have changed things for you maybe you wouldn't have watched more of their films you know what was your first Fellini and and your first Truffaut and Godard like I think it's fascinating to think about how that first film can pull you in or it can repel you and you could fall in love with the director or you could not fall in love with them and it's sometimes it's about finding the perfect film it's about finding that door into the cinematic universe of this filmmaker sometimes you have to try a lot of doors and sometimes you open the perfect one you are a fan for life and you fall deeply in love with them like I think about Krzysztof Kieślowski my favorite director what if I had not watched The Double Life of Veronique as my first film by him what if I had watched one of his one of his more obscure early films possibly like Camera Buff as much as I do like Camera Buff I don't think it would have hit me the way that The Double Life of Veronique did and so that was my first experience of Kieślowski and then I watched Three Colors Blue, and then I watched Three Colors Red, then I watched Decalogue, and I was so deeply in love with this man's world and his cinema and what he did and what he created. So I'm grateful that was my first film by him. So this was just something I wanted to linger on because I think it's fascinating and it's something I think about when I recommend films to people. What is that entry point? What could be the film that they fall in love with? I don't know if I would recommend Persona as the first Bergman for somebody to watch. I don't know. It's interesting because my first Ingmar Bergman film, I can't remember if it was Hour of the Wolf or The Virgin Spring. It was one of them. I like The Virgin Spring. I'm not as crazy about Hour of the Wolf, but I stuck it out with Bergman. I did watch Persona very early on with Bergman and I found it really difficult. And it's one of those that I need to revisit because I was just starting to get into art house cinema at that time, around 2011, 2012. So this film language was very new to me and still difficult. And I was still figuring it out and discovering it. And I don't know if Persona hit me quite as hard as it hits other people because it's it's a difficult film. It's a complicated film. And I don't know if I understood what I was seeing and what I was watching. And it's one of those films I really need to revisit because I think it would probably hit me differently now that I'm older. I've watched more films. I'm more familiar with art house cinema. So 
I just wanted to linger on that for a minute and just encourage you to think about it and like what's your first film by a director and how did that affect you and what was your first Cassavetes right like I I think these are interesting questions and I think about them sometimes and I just wanted to go into that. Sometimes the first film that you watch by a director, it might not be considered a great film or an important film in their body of work, but it could go on to mean something to you. It could be deeply meaningful in your own life because you remember when you saw it. You remember the first time seeing it and discovering this director for the first time. And so you might feel that really deep emotional personal connection to that film when critics don't like it and maybe other fans of that director don't like it right like when people talk about Bergman I know I keep talking about him they usually say Persona is their favorite or the seventh seal for me I really love Summer Interlude and it's not the first Bergman that I saw but I feel a personal emotional connection to it I also really like Autumn Sonata that's one that doesn't get mentioned a lot but I absolutely loved Ingrid Bergman in that one I love I love Bergman's films about women and I think that's why I love Cassavetes too. I love his films about women and like Bergman his films are deeply personal, deeply emotional and he had this ability to put women on the screen in really fascinating moving ways and Jenna Rollins herself in an interview said that she never quite understood how Cassavetes could write women so well and understand them so well. I'm someone that I do like his representations of women. I do like A Woman Under the Influence and Opening Night and Gloria. And I love the characters that he gave Jenna and, and what she was able to do with them. And he gave her such rich, substantial material. And I, I am a fan of their collaborations. I'm a fan of, of what he did and how he represented women in his films. I don't know how other people feel about it. I'm sure they're, these representations are not perfect, but I do know that they're there are things about them that resonate with me personally. I will move on and we will talk about this film, but I just wanted to talk about that for a minute. What I'm going to do in this episode is that I've structured it around Myrtle Gordon and I just wanted to go over our characters. I try to do that at the beginning of each episode. So we have Jenna Rollins as Myrtle Gordon. John Cassavetes himself acts in this film. He's Maurice Ahrens. Ben Gazzara is Manny Victor. He is the director of the play. John Cassavetes as Maurice. He is an actor in the play. We have Joan Blondell as Sarah Goodge. She is the playwright. Those are pretty much our main characters. Myrtle, Maurice, Manny, and Sarah Good. Those are the main people in this film for sure. The way I want to structure it is through Myrtle Gordon herself and her relationships and her feelings So I want to talk about Myrtle as a character. I want to talk about Myrtle and her relationship with Nancy, the dead girl. And Nancy is played by Laura Johnson. I forgot to mention her. Myrtle and Maurice at the end of the film, for instance. So all of this is going to be structured around Myrtle herself, her relationships with other people, and how she feels about different issues in the film. So first I want to talk about Myrtle as a character in general. 
this was John Cassavetti's favorite of his films. This is according to an interview he did with Lawrence Gavron. He said that Myrtle Gordon is his favorite woman. I guess the favorite woman he wrote. And he says about her, quote, what's unique about the woman in my film is that she is totally honest with herself, very persistent, and fundamentally alone, unquote. I do feel a sense of loneliness about Myrtle, for sure. He wanted to look at what happens when you are not wanted or desired the way that you once were. That was something he wanted to explore. And with this film, he also wanted to show the life of an artist, the life of a creator. And so he chose an actress to focus on. Myrtle Gordon as a character really lives for herself. She is a famous actress in this film, both a screen actress and a stage actress, just like Jenna was. She doesn't have a husband. She doesn't have a lot of attachments, really. She doesn't have any children. She is solely dedicated to her art. It's her craft. It's her career. She is dedicated to that. Dedicated to the characters that she plays and the work that she does as an actress. But over the course of this film, she really becomes a woman in crisis. She has an existential crisis because of this play that she's putting on called The Second Woman written by Sarah Good, played by Joan Blondell. Her character in the play is named Virginia. The second woman of the title, I think, refers to the second part of your life as an older woman. I think that's what it is. That's what I gathered from the film. And I think that Cassavetes is so brilliant at really capturing the inner turmoil and torment of people. I do think that's a hallmark of his style. His films are about feelings and emotions. So of course I am drawn to them. I am a deeply emotional person. Any longtime listener knows this. I am so emotional. My emotions and feelings are always oozing out of me. They are always on the surface. I often don't always know how to control them and I do often feel overwhelmed by them and I was thinking recently like I really thought when I turned 30 that something would change when it came to my emotional life. I thought there's no way I'm gonna stay this raw and this intense into my 30s. I do sometimes still feel like a teenager inside and there is a scene where Myrtle is talking about that and I'll discuss it at length in a little bit where she's talking about when she was a teenager and her emotions were easy to access and always on the surface and of course I'm not an actress but I am a writer. I consider myself a writer and I'm somebody who is very in touch with my emotions and connected to my emotions. And part of me wishes I was an actress. I'll talk about that later too. So emotion sort of rules my life in a lot of ways. That's why when I talk about films, it's always very emotional and personal because that's the way that I experience art. I experience art as like like this fire or, or something like feverish that comes over me. I experience art like in my gut and in my soul. Not every single film and not every single book I read or poem I read is like that, of course. You can't sustain that level of intensity 24-7. But a lot of 
what happens to me is that I just, I feel overwhelmed by my emotions. It's, it's been going on recently where I've just felt overtaken by them at times. And I just thought when, you know, as I got older, as I got into my thirties, I would maybe mellow out a little bit or like this would die down a bit. And if anything, it's gotten more intense. And part of me doesn't want to lose that because I like being emotional. I like being in touch with my feelings and being connected to myself in that way. I feel that I live in a deep way sometimes. I feel that I have these very intense experiences of life, but sometimes it can it can be isolating and lonely to feel that way. It can, I think when you're so trapped inside yourself the way I am, I have a very rich and intense inner life and inner world and dream world. I'm somebody who dreams a lot and has daydreams and I live in my mind a lot. And it means that it's hard for me to connect to people and it's hard for me to get out of that. And it's hard for me to, I guess, to to accept life because your dreams are always more intense than real life. Your your dreams are always more beautiful than reality. So it can make it hard for me to live and to exist in this sphere, you know, in this world. And so I find that I often want to escape it. And escapism is really important to me. Like I can't face life. I can't deal with life. I can't live my life. But I know that I have to work on that and I have to do a better job of that or something. So I am drawn to director's who explore feeling and emotion. And I feel like with Cassavetti's characters, the emotion is always just pouring out of them that they are feeling things inside that they can't control or that they are barely containing the chaos inside of themselves and sometimes the torment and the the pain that they feel. And I felt that with Myrtle. She drinks, she smokes a lot. She's always moving and kinetic and you can tell that there's just a lot going on inside of her and that she feels a lot. That's the kind of character that she that she was to me. And this play is really an inciting incident. It it sparks like an existential crisis as I said or a midlife crisis for her where she's in her 40s. Jenna Rollins would have been 47 when the film came out. So she was maybe a little bit younger when they were filming it. So she would have been in her mid forties. So she's this woman close to 50, right? I got the sense that until this play, she really didn't think about it a lot. (laughs) It didn't affect her a whole lot. But when she has to play this character of Virginia, she has to start thinking about her age and what that means. And it precipitates a crisis for her and a breakdown in many ways. I think she's feeling things she's never felt before. And it's like this hole has been blasted in her life. She's a messy and she's a complicated woman. And I always love those. She's a woman who feels. She's a woman who has emotions. And I also love that. She's raw. She's vulnerable. And Jenna is all those things in the role. The opening of the film sets up a lot, I think. It opens with Myrtle Gordon saying 
like a quote or or having a conversation and we'll hear it repeated again later on in the film when she's talking to Sarah Good she says at the beginning of the film and it opens with these words and then we see this we see the audience and we see Jenna in this beautiful dress with her arms raised up I love the whole look of this film I love the glamour of it and the beauty of it as well so Myrtle is saying quote they want to be loved they have to be loved. The whole world. Everybody wants to be loved. When I was 17, I could do anything. It was so easy. My emotions were so close to the surface. I am finding it harder and harder to stay in touch, unquote. And she's just wearing this gauzy, beautiful dress with these huge sleeves. It's so glamorous. And I love the color pink in this film. This is shallow, but I absolutely love the color pink in this film. It's one of the things that has stayed with me for years. Jenna's pink lipstick, her pink nail polish, her pink dress. There are all these kinds of touches of pink throughout the film and I absolutely love them. I love the color of her blonde hair. Like (laughs) I worship Jenna. I think she is such a goddess and in this film in particular where she's playing a very glamorous actress. I love the way she holds her cigarette. I love the glasses, the sunglasses she wears. I love everything about her in this film. Everything that she wears, the way that she moves, like she just is Myrtle and it's she's larger than life but she's so vulnerable at the same time and I've loved Jenna from the time I was a child. I knew her from The Notebook and Hope Floats, films that I watched with my mom and Jenna has always been one of my mom's favorite actresses. She is always been a huge huge Jenna Rollins fan and that's how I knew about her and then it wasn't till later when I got into art house cinema in the early 2010s that I discovered her work with John Cassavetes. It has impressed me so much. She is one of the greatest actresses who has ever lived. Her performance in A Woman Under the Influence is one of the greatest ever and I think in opening night she gives another astonishing amazing performance as well. So I want to talk about Myrtle as an actress. I want to talk about the subject of acting and of Jenna's performance a bit. Cassavetes was a director who really cared about actors in his films. He was known as a actor, he was known as an actor's director in many ways and that was probably because he himself was an actor and he often took took roles so that he could bankroll his independent films. He was an important figure in independent cinema in the 60s and 70s. He never had a lot of money. (laughs) He was operating outside the studio system and he had to come up with creative ways to make his films and he would take roles that maybe he didn't necessarily love but then he would use that money to to fund his films and he cared about actors. There was this interview between Ben Gazzara and Jenna Rollins that I watched and Ben said that John believed a film was a relationship between the director and the actors. For John Cassavetes the actor was crucial and to me that makes a lot of sense as a director who's dealing with emotions and who's interested in people and their relationships with each other and their experiences in the world and what it means to be human. That is 
what an actor conveys. That's what an actor communicates is what it means to be human. I think this is what's fascinating about actors is that their material is life itself. Their material is emotion and feeling. And I mean, if you think about it, like a writer uses language and words, a painter uses paint. Actors are very similar to dancers in a way where their tool or what they use to communicate is their very body and their face. That's what they have to use. And that's always fascinated me. He was devoted to actors. And there's this great book called John Cassavetti's Interviews. It's edited by Gabriella Oldham, who also wrote the introduction. And Gabriella wrote, quote, as a director devoted to the actor, Cassavetti's intently believed in the actor's unrestricted potential to explore raw emotional depth, creating a perception of improvisational freedom, unquote. Even though Cassavetti's films come off unscripted, they're not. They were meticulously scripted, some people don't know that. Gabriella went on to write, quote, while fascinated by men's behaviors, which he examined repeatedly with cronies Peter Falk, Ben Gazzara, and Seymour Castle, Cassavetes was especially smitten with depicting the soul of women, many of whom were personified by Jenna Rollins. He built his stories around her ability to express degrees of living and feeling, passion, resignation, insanity, innocence, fury, without recoiling from the vulnerability her roles exposed, unquote. And in an interview with Lawrence Gavron, Cassavetes himself said, the actor is what interests me the most because actors don't have anything else to offer other than themselves. And their way of communicating is so special and different that if something intervenes, it's impossible to express the shock to their spirit, their feelings, the way they are wounded by it. So he was interested in actors and he focused on that and he wanted to showcase actors in his film. Something that I really love about this film are the close-ups. They are extreme and they are glorious <laughs> and they are so crucial in taking us into the character of Myrtle Gordon. In an interview, Jenna said something uh, about John and how he once said that um, he knows that a cameraman has done a good job when he wants to reach out and touch the skin of the actor on the screen. The skin in this film, in opening night, is so tangible on the screen. That is what struck me throughout watching this. And I love the close-ups in this film. I love that the camera is right in their faces. You can see every wrinkle in their skin. You can see all the texture, the texture of their hair, the texture of their hands. These people are flesh. I love close-ups. I love it. And it may not be in vogue with independent filmmakers. I love close-ups. I love when there is no distance between the actor and the viewer. So yeah, I am a fan of close-ups. <laughs> I don't know how other people feel, but I think they are such a powerful way to convey emotion and to make you feel connected to a character and to the actor who's playing them. There are some extreme close-ups in this film and I loved it. I loved seeing the skin of the actors and I felt like it took me into the emotional world of Myrtle. I felt so connected to her and she felt very real to me and you could just feel the emotions on the surface of her and that they were just oozing out of her. When it comes to acting and Myrtle, it really is her whole life. 
it's all she has. Acting is really how Myrtle accesses love. She gets love from the audience. She gets love from people. Everywhere she goes, people want to give her things. They want to know her. She's intriguing to them because she's this famous, beautiful actress. That gives her a sense of self, I think. But the thing about it is that it's temporary. It's not going to last forever. Her youth and her beauty are not going to last forever. Now, Jenna was in her 40s. She was in her mid-40s, but I actually thought she was younger than that. I thought she was closer to her early 40s or possibly even late 30s. I think Jenna looks quite youthful in the film. So I was surprised when I did the math and figured out that she was around 47 years old. Myrtle is this woman who, she doesn't feel like her life is in decline yet. She doesn't feel like her age limits her. And acting is what she has devoted her life to. She's not married. She doesn't have children. When she goes home after rehearsals, she's by herself. Or sometimes she gets with Manny, Ben Gazzara, who directs the play. And he's married, but he is very in love. Or maybe not in love, but he has this lust for Myrtle. He sees her as exciting and interesting and unpredictable and you can tell there's a passion between the two of them. There's also an electricity or a chemistry between her and Maurice played by John Cassavetes. I love how even when Cassavetes has to pretend to not be too attracted to Myrtle, to Jenna, like you can, I still saw these moments in the film where he had these lovesick eyes that he would give Jenna. And I just thought, yes, I need to find somebody that looks at me the way John Cassavetes looks at Jenna Rollins. That is what I need in my life. I think that's what we all need. Okay. Find you somebody like that. (laughs) That is the bar and it's very high at this point. I was really fascinated about that aspect of Myrtle of how she's a single woman. She's an older single woman. She's what I guess back in the day would be seen as a spinster or an old maid, but she's really not. She actually lives this very glamorous, exciting life as an actress and people love her and she's mobbed by her fans. And so of course Myrtle, when she takes this part, doesn't connect to it. It doesn't connect to her life because she doesn't live that life. She lives the life of a beautiful, glamorous actress. I personally have a fascination with acting. I feel like I would have been an actress in another life if I were beautiful. I love how actors access their emotions, how they are conduits for all of these feelings. I've always been fascinated by how an actress becomes another person. Maybe because I've never wanted to be myself. I've never wanted to be me. I've always wished that I could be somebody else or be other people. So that's what an actress gets to do. And that's always been so fascinating to me. I've always wondered what it's like to inhabit a person on screen or stage. What does that feel like? What was it like for Falconetti to be Joan of Arc in Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc? I have an episode about that film. I love it. I think she gives probably the greatest acting performance of all time. That's just my opinion. But what was it like for her to inhabit Joan of Arc? What was it like for Jenna to be Myrtle Gordon or to be Mabel in A Woman Under the Influence? You know, you just think of these great performances. We all have what we consider to be great performances. One that comes to mind is Marion Cotillard in La Vie en Rose, where she plays Edith Piaf. That's 
another big one for me where I feel like Marion Cotillard completely transformed and was transcendent in that role. Like, I still can't believe it when I watch it. I'd love to talk about it one day in an episode because she just... It was like she became Edith Piaf. Like, it's stunning when you see performances like that. What is that like? What does that feel like? I would love to know. I wonder if there are any actresses out there who have been able to describe it or explain it, what it is like to become that character. You're slipping into another skin. Like, I want to taste that. I want to taste what it's like to be somebody else. But in my life right now, I'm trying to accept who I am and be who I am and not want to flee from myself and not want to escape myself and not want to not be me right? That's not easy. It's not easy to be yourself. I know that sounds ridiculous, but I've just never wanted to be me. I've always wanted to be someone else. I guess like a better version of myself or something. Somebody more outgoing, somebody with more confidence, somebody who wasn't invisible and wasn't forgotten or abandoned or rejected by people the way I've been for much of my life. Like I've just always felt like a nobody. And so It's hard to live like that. It's hard to feel like you don't matter or you don't exist or that people don't care about you or you're not memorable or nobody misses you or cares about you. And so I just never wanted to be me because of that. But I'm trying really hard to get to a place where I feel like I do have value and I do have worth and I have something to contribute and I'm worth knowing I'm worth caring about. I'm worth loving. But it's hard when you go through life feeling unloved and unwanted and undesirable and all of those things that I felt for a really long time. I'm trying to get to a place where I don't want to escape myself. I don't want to be somebody else that I'm at peace with who I am and I'm a, and I feel like I have value and that I love myself and that's not it's not easy it takes a lot of work I'm in the process of that right now I've been trying really hard this year in 2020 to do that and to fight for myself and to care about myself and to give myself the love that other people have not been able to give me and to look at myself and say you have worth and you matter even if A lot of people don't believe that, even if you are invisible to much of the world, (laughs) but you have a fundamental human value, and I'm trying to believe that more. Doing this podcast and having those of you who have connected to me and who have seen things in me that I was not able to see and who have said that you're grateful for what I share, you're glad that I'm here, (laughs) and you're glad that, um, and and you think that who I am matters and that I have something to offer. Like those of you who send me messages and and all of that, I I don't take it lightly, you know, and those messages matter to me and I read them and and I'm affected by them and they help me tremendously. And they've been a big reason why I feel like I've come to a place where I feel better about myself and I am starting to believe in myself and have more confidence and, and things like that. So I thank all of you for that. I really do. I thank you so much because you've really given me more than I can say 
and more than you realize. I mean, to you, it's probably just a message (laughs) or something. But to me, it's like an affirmation of my value as a person because I don't hear it a lot. I'm not surrounded by that. I don't have a big support system the way some of you might. And so when I get messages from people, they really do affect me. I mean, maybe maybe I care too much or I take them too seriously. I don't know, but I really appreciate them. Those of you who listen and those of you who care and who reach out, I mean, it does make a difference for me. And I want you to know that. So for me, my whole life, I've wanted to be somebody else or to escape myself. And now at 31, (laughs) I'm finally trying to accept myself and, and find peace in my skin instead of wanting to be in somebody else's skin. But that's what an actress does is that they become other people. And I've just always been fascinated by that. But you know, I got to thinking with acting, what is the cost of that kind of exposure and vulnerability that an actress needs to have? What kind of toll does it take on the psyche and your sense of self? Do you get lost in it? How do you know who you are when you're always being somebody else? And I get that sense with Myrtle sometimes. She's very dependent on the audience. She's dependent on how people react to her. And she is dependent on the characters that she plays. That is why she goes into this crisis once she's playing a character that she doesn't understand and that she cannot access. For Jenna, in an interview Jenna did, she felt like Myrtle just thought the play was bad. (laughs) She just didn't think it was written very well. I think it's deeper than that. I think Myrtle senses something in this character. I think she senses the character in her and she doesn't want to acknowledge that. That maybe she is insecure about her age. Maybe she is worried about how her age will affect her ability to act and she doesn't want to admit it to herself until she starts doing this play. And it occurred to me that just as actresses lose themselves in a character, we can lose ourselves in actresses. We can get lost in their movies, in their glamour, in their beauty, in the way that we idolize them, the way that the fan Nancy does when she goes up to Myrtle and she's so obsessed with Myrtle. And I did want to say that actors and actresses, they need vulnerability. That's a really important thing to have. And I kind of understand that in doing this podcast of like, of course, I'm not an actress. But when I'm doing these episodes, I do have to sort of access my own vulnerability. I have to access my emotions, not on demand necessarily, but I do put out about I do put out two episodes a month at this point. I have to do that every month. I mean, that's what I'm doing right now because I want to do this and I like creating these episodes and I like talking and sharing stuff and (laughs) I like talking, okay? But I have to access that vulnerability and those emotions in myself and that can be difficult. It can be difficult to share really personal vulnerable things. It's not always easy. I don't know if people understand how hard it can be and also as a writer sometimes you have to access those emotions or access memories or feelings at least the way I write that's kind of what I do so I do feel that pressure sometimes when I'm doing these episodes I know it's not the same thing and I'm not necessarily performing but I kind of understand like what it's like to have to to have to share things about yourself or to be vulnerable to other people. I do feel a bit of pressure sometimes when I'm doing these episodes like oh I need to get this done. I need to talk about this film. I need to get this episode ready. So it's like in this moment I need to access all these things 
things and share with people, am I always in that space to do that? Am I always in that mood to do that? Not necessarily. But through that, I get like a little bit of a taste of what it might be for an actress where Myrtle has to just go on stage and do all of this. And she has to access all these emotions on cue at a specific time in front of all these people and how hard that must be. So I just understand some of that vulnerability. Gradually throughout the film, Myrtle is losing her mind. She's falling apart. This role completely destabilizes her. I know I use that word a lot in these episodes, but she is absolutely destabilized by playing Virginia in The Second Woman. She cannot handle it. And I don't know if it's If it's the character herself or just because Myrtle can't play her and can't access the right things to connect to her, I wonder if it makes her feel insecure about her ability to act. And if she feels like she's losing her powers as an actress because she can't play this role. So I don't know which it is. I don't know if it's if it's the character herself who makes her question things about herself or if it's just the fact that she can't play her makes her feel like she's losing her ability as an actress and she has this crisis of self and it could be both it could be the mixture of those two things and gradually throughout the film we see her breaking down one moment is when her and Maurice are rehearsing the slapping scene she doesn't like being slapped obviously who would what woman would enjoy being slapped by a man over and over again. She falls to the floor. She's screaming no more. She's having like this very visible breakdown really. And you can feel the physical and psychological toll of acting. And this comes after her fan gets killed. And I'll talk specifically about Nancy, the dead girl later. Right now, I just want to talk about Myrtle as an actress. So after her fan gets killed, and we'll talk about if that fan was real or not, if that death was real or not, I'm still not completely sure myself. I think it's very ambiguous. So once her fan gets killed, it's not just the play. I I need to backtrack a little bit. It's not just the play that destabilizes Myrtle. It's not just the play that leads to her breakdown. It's the death of this fan. It's the death of Nancy that she witnesses that precipitates her breakdown as well. So I think it's both of those things. It's the powder keg of putting on a stage play and how difficult that can be. And it's also seeing this girl die in the prime of her life. And there's this very famous scene where Myrtle is talking to Sarah Good, the playwright. She's saying that the character of Virginia is alien to her. She says, quote, I seem to have lost the reality of the reality. I dream funny dreams too. I'm not myself, unquote. So the character doesn't make sense to her. And I think she doesn't make sense to herself anymore either. That's what's happening in this breakdown is once Nancy dies, she loses her grip on reality. She can't connect to this character and she can't connect to herself. It really is this crisis within her, this psychological disintegration that she's undergoing. She's very similar to Mabel in that way from A Woman Under the Influence, who's also going through a psychological disintegration and this disconnection from reality. I seem to have lost the reality 
of the reality. She can't connect to this woman and she can't connect to herself. I, I couldn't decide if, if the character had gotten underneath Myrtle's skin or if she hadn't. It's almost like she can't find a way into the character, into this woman. It, it was hard to tell. I just, she didn't have an entry point into Virginia because her life was so different from this woman's life. And really her rejection of Virginia is in many ways an indictment of the play itself. It's a rejection of Sarah's play. It's a rejection of this work that Sarah has created. And in many ways, the play is sort of autobiographical. Sarah seems to have put her own emotions into the play. And so when Myrtle rejects that, I think Sarah feels rejected in that way. She wants Myrtle to just read the lines and do her job. That's what she wants. She doesn't want to hear Myrtle's endless <laughs> diatribes against the character. She just wants her to do her job. And Myrtle's not able to do that. She's not able to just deliver and perform on command. That's not what Myrtle can do. And later on in the film, this is another indication of her breakdown. Myrtle goes to Sarah's suite at the hotel where they're staying while they're in rehearsals for the play. And she just launches herself against the walls. Like she's just hitting her head against the walls. And her one of her eyes starts to bleed. And you can tell that Sarah is so shocked by this. So throughout the film, there are these scenes where Myrtle is just losing it. Like she is losing it. She's breaking down in front of everybody. She can't get it together. And that's the genius of Jenna's performance is how she plays that. There are so many shades of emotion and shades of nuance in Jenna's performance. She's an actress playing an actress. <laughs> She's doing a play within a film. She is at times very cool, calm, and collected and has it together. And then gradually throughout the film, she's just falling apart. And by the end of the film, when she shows up opening night drunk, falling down, she is literally just a train, she is just a train wreck. She is just a mess that everybody else is having to deal with and to pick up and to, you know, get her through this play somehow. And the play becomes more important than Myrtle's life. I mean, most people, and I think Cassavetti said this in some interview, like, why did the play go on? with her in that condition? Why would they put her on stage in front of hundreds or thousands of people in that condition? Because nothing matters except the play. The people don't even matter. All that matters is the play. Like Myrtle's life is completely secondary to that. And she has no life but this. This is her life, is acting, is being in this play. And I think when she can't play Virginia, when she can't do the role, and of course the death of the girl as well, she loses touch with herself. She doesn't know who she is anymore because her life is so dedicated to this one thing that she doesn't know herself otherwise. She doesn't have a partner to go home to. She doesn't have anything else to put her life into. She doesn't have children. She doesn't have a spouse. She has no responsibilities and she's furry in that way. She would be seen as like a liberated woman, right? But that also means that there's nobody there to pick her up. There's nobody there to care about her at the end of the day. She is alone. Even the people in the play don't really care about her. It's all about the play and she's just one part of it. They're going to put her out on stage no matter what condition she's in because that's not what matters. 
what matters is doing this play on opening night. And that comes above Myrtle's life or her health or anything like that. She has nobody there to pick her up. And she has nobody to stop the disintegration or stop the breakdown. She has nobody there to to help her with that and to stop that from happening because she's just going home alone every night or she's getting with Manny or but he goes home to his wife. She doesn't have that. She doesn't have a partner. She doesn't have a family. She doesn't have anybody there to help strengthen her or to give her love or to give her companionship or to give her the care that you need. She's just on her own having to deal with everything and she's falling apart. So now I want to talk about Myrtle and the subject of aging. According to Cassavetes in an interview, the playwright Sarah Good, she thinks that age gets the best of you in the end, but Myrtle doesn't feel that way. This is the way that Cassavetes described it. And he also talked about how he himself struggled with aging and he pulled from those experiences and those emotions. In that interview with Lawrence Gavron, he says, quote, I've always seemed young and suddenly I'm going to be 48. I look at myself in the mirror sometimes and I say, what's this stupid face all about? Who would want such a face? So I understand these sorts of feelings, unquote. To me, this film feels very personal. It feels like Cassavetes wanting to delve into this subject of aging. And we don't have a ton of films, I don't think, and I can't think of, that explore this issue so deeply. He uses Myrtle as a way to explore this issue of aging. I like that he chose a woman to do this because for a woman, aging is different than aging as a man. I think we can all acknowledge that. As a woman to age, even in even now, after decades of the feminist movement, progress that women have made, we have made progress in some ways and in other ways we haven't and we still have a lot of work to do. And I myself as a feminist, I don't always live my principles or live my values. It's very easy to say a woman shouldn't be judged for aging, that all of the things that come with it shouldn't happen. And then you yourself start to feel these things and you don't know what to do with them. As a woman to age is often to become invisible, to be dismissed, to be seen as inconsequential and insignificant and ultimately undesirable. And I think that's a big reason why Myrtle's uncomfortable with it is that undesirability. She likes being desired by Manny and other men. She enjoys that. She likes being beautiful and glamorous. And she likes having really great acting roles too. She likes living the life that she has. She likes being important. I don't think she wants to give any of that up. She shouldn't have to give any of it up just because she's getting older. But the truth of the matter is that those things increasingly as she gets older will be endangered and may go away, right? Like I said, as a feminist, I feel like a woman's age shouldn't matter. Of course not. (laughs) But then I myself have fears and anxieties about aging. And I'm not even attractive or beautiful or anything. I mean, I've talked about this in episodes. I'm, I've been invisible 
my entire life. I'm not somebody who's seen as beautiful. And there's a lot of pain and damage that has come because of that for me. So I can't imagine what it's like for very beautiful women who are used to that attention and used to being seen as desirable and the fears that they may feel about losing that, getting older. Because here in the West in particular, I can't talk about other areas of the world, but in the United States, we are obsessed with youth. We center youth obsessively. Social media has only made it worse. Everything is tailored to teenagers and like people in their early 20s. I'm only 31 and I've started to notice it. I have already started to feel out of touch (laughs) with things and to realize that films and TV shows are not geared towards me. They're not geared towards people in their 30s. They tend to be geared towards very young people, teenagers and people in their 20s, their early 20s. And I turned 30 last year in 2019 and something changed in me and really hit me and I'm still coming to terms with it. And that's why I'm glad I watched this film because it allowed me to think more about these feelings that I've had since turning 30. And I know 30 is not old. I know that. But it's also not 20, right? And it's not in your teens. And I'm still trying to process what I started to feel when I turned 30. And I don't know exactly what it was. I don't know if it's awareness of my mortality or understanding that I've been here for 30 years and I have so little to show for my life. I'm a millennial. As we know, a lot of millennials are not doing too well. We have less wealth than our parents. A lot of us can't own homes. We're in debt because we went to college. We're not having children because we can't afford them. We're in the gig economy. We have shitty jobs. Like there's a lot that millennials are going through. When we entered the workforce, the Great Recession started. Now we're going through a pandemic. Millennials have been hit really hard. I know every generation has, but millennials in particular. I don't know if what hit me was like the feeling that life was passing me by and that I am wasting time, that I've just been trashing these years. I got more serious about things when I turned 30. I wanted to eliminate what wasn't important and I wanted to get my life together more, but I've been struggling to do that. I'm not giving up though. I have been thinking about aging. I've been thinking about my skin and how I look and I never used to think about something like that. As I said, I already feel out of touch with pop culture now that it doesn't cater to my age group, but more to the Zoomers or Generation Z or whatever they're called. I'm more nostalgic for sure. (laughs) I'm also more a bit of a curmudgeon, I'll be honest. (laughs) You know, those things like kids these days, right? I just feel so disconnected from young people. I don't ever interact with them really except for social media. But a lot of people that I know and interact with and who follow me are not really, really young. So I just feel out of touch at this point. I feel very out of touch. So the thing about aging is that we can't do anything about it. Nothing. Not a thing. Time moves forward and we do too. We can't go back. We can't have our youth again. We have to accept getting older. And I guess that's always what's terrified me. But at 31... 
I do feel like I'm doing the hard work of loving myself finally, of connecting to myself, becoming myself, becoming the person that I feel like I'm supposed to be. I want to let go of certain things in the past. I really do. And recently I was listening to a Tori Amos song and y'all know I love Tori Amos. She is the goddess. She is my everything, my favorite musician, my favorite artist of all time. I found her when I was about 15 or 16 and she's just such an important part of my life. But I was listening to one of her songs called Precious Things and it's one of my favorite songs by her. It has this amazing power and just, oh my God, it overtakes me. It has this energy about it that I love listening to. The The song really speaks to me because it's about letting go of those things from your past, from your childhood that just destroyed you and broke you. And in the chorus, she says, these precious things, let them bleed, let them wash away. These precious things, let them break their hold on me. And I love that. Let them break their hold on me. I don't want to hold on to those things anymore. I don't want to hold on to the pain and the brokenness of that teenage girl I was or that little girl I was. I want to let go of those precious things, those things that harmed me and just destroyed me, the way boys treated me, the way men treated me, the way family members treated me, you know, just things that I went through as as a kid. I don't want to let those things control me anymore as a 31-year-old woman. Like, I have to find a way to not be that anymore and to not let that control me and dominate me, you know? And it's so hard. It is taking so much work, but I am doing the work. I am truly starting to do the work to undo what all these years have done to me. It's like, how do you undo that damage? I have to undo the damage because it's killing me. If I don't undo the damage, if I don't let go of these things, I can't live. I can't survive because it has been killing me, killing me for decades at this point, killing me inside, making me hate myself, destroying me. And I have to pry all of that loose. I have to get it out of me. Let it bleed. Let it wash away. I need a cleansing. (laughs) I need to purge it out of me somehow. And I'm trying and I'm doing that work right now. I don't know how long it's going to take. But every day I wake up and I'm trying so hard to fight for myself. I hope anybody who's listening and who needs to hear that, you have to fight for yourself. And I know I sound like self-help and I don't mean to. I don't want to. That's not who I am. I'm just trying to save myself. I have to save myself because I know that nobody else is going to do it. Nobody is going to save me. I have to do that. I have to come to terms with my life and I have to accept my life. I have to find a way to let go of the things that have broken me. I really do. It's hard, but I do feel like at 31, I'm starting to do that. I feel like Myrtle sees aging as something terrible, right? She's frightened of it. I think you can tell that. But is aging always a horror? I mean, I think about women who celebrate their 30s and 40s because of the freedom it brings. Young women are often not allowed to be assertive, to proclaim what they want and to go after it, to take up space and to be 
who they are. Their life revolves more around men and the male gaze, their looks, their desirability. You often hear about women that as they get older, they start to feel more liberated and they start to feel more like, I don't care. You know, I'm not going to let myself be defined by the way men see me or what men want. I'm not going to center men in my life so much. So age can bring experience and knowledge, feeling better about yourself, feeling more confident, not giving a shit anymore what people think of you. Ultimately, I want to get to a place where I don't give a fuck what anybody thinks of me. That is my ultimate goal is to be that woman who does not give a fuck what anyone thinks. That's what I'm going for. So I think for some women, aging can be liberating rather than destructive. But for Sarah Good and Myrtle Gordon, aging is is painful and it's scary. Sarah Good, when she explains the woman explains Virginia. She says that she's helpless, that she wants to fall in love, but her time has passed. It's too late for her. That's what she says. So for Sarah Good, getting older is painful. And especially in the 1970s, I'm sure. Sarah's like in her 60s. She says she's 65. So she's at a very different place in her life than Myrtle, who's 45 or 47, you know, in her mid 40s. Sarah Good at one point asks Myrtle how old she is. And Myrtle never does say what her age is. She never does answer it. And she asks Myrtle in one scene that they have together, what is it that the play doesn't express? And Myrtle says one word. She says hope. She doesn't think the play has hope. She thinks the character is held back by her age, but Myrtle is not held back. Myrtle doesn't place any importance, so she says, on age. She says it doesn't doesn't define her. She still wants everything she's ever wanted, no matter what age she is. And there's another scene where Sarah and Myrtle meet privately. They meet at Sarah's suite at the hotel. And she again asks Myrtle her age, asks if she can accept her age, right? And Myrtle says that she can. You know, she brings up how every playwright does a play about themselves, and that's what Sarah's done. But she says that she's in a different place in her life than Sarah is. And Myrtle, this is actually a very important scene because it brings up the insecurities that Myrtle has about aging. She claims she doesn't care, but I think she deeply cares. This is my interpretation. If she didn't really care about aging, then why did this play get under her skin the way it did? Why did this character elude her right? I mean, is it so hard to believe that a woman getting older would ha- would struggle with that and would have a hard time with that? I mean, to me, it's very strange that Myrtle can't access the character. And maybe it's because Myrtle is this glamorous, famous actress, and she's just out of touch with reality, like she said. Like, she's not your average 45-year-old woman who isn't an actress. You know, an average 45-year-old woman is worried about her wrinkles, she is worried about dating. Like she is worried about getting older. She she is. Women care about it. Women worry about it. They worry about their skin. They worry about their wrinkles. I mean, the entire makeup industry is geared towards all of this, right? Everybody wants the fountain of youth. Nobody wants to look old. And my God, Instagram and social media have made it even worse where you see people with filters and you see people with tons of makeup on. Like, of course, a woman in her 40s in the 1970s and even now is going to struggle with getting older and is going to struggle with her age. But for some reason, Myrtle just can't access that. She can't connect with this character at all. 
And Myrtle says in this scene, she's not ready to play grandmothers yet. And she's upset with how Virginia, the character in the play, has hot flashes and is going through menopause already when Myrtle herself is not. She isn't experiencing those things. But there are women in their 40s who go through menopause, right? I mean, this does happen. It's not unheard of. So the 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 character is somewhat authentic and believable, but the thing is, is that Myrtle doesn't want to play her well. And that's what she tells Sarah. She says, if I play this part well, then my career is going to be severely limited. Those are the words she uses, severely limited. So she has this fear of losing good parts, of becoming a grandmother or or mother type um, actress, of being limited by her age. Myrtle says that once you're convincing in a part, the audience accepts you as that. She doesn't want to be accepted as old. So she's looking for a way to play this part where age doesn't make a difference. That's what she says. She says, quote, age isn't interesting. Age is depressing. Age is dull. Age doesn't have anything to do with anything, unquote. But I disagree. I disagree. I think it does. It truly does. Women's lives do become limited as they age in a society obsessed with youth. Actresses do see their parts reduced. This is all she has is her acting. That's it. The screen and the stage. And this is also when Myrtle says the the thing that we heard at the beginning of the film, how when she was 18, her emotions were closer to the surface. She could easily access them. And she mentions the dead girl. She mentions Nancy and says that I think Nancy is open or something like that. So this is a very important scene. It's a very famous scene when she talks about aging, how aging doesn't have anything to do with anything. But for a woman, that's just not true. Aging does affect our lives and it does affect how people see us and react to us and the opportunities that we get. And yes, it absolutely matters. I wish it didn't. You know, when men get older, it's just not the same. They're not seen as less desirable. They're not seen as inconsequential and insignificant. Maybe it is changing. I hope it is changing. That as women get older, they don't feel this way. But I can only speak as a 31-year-old. I already feel, I'm not going to say I feel old, but I already feel worried about getting older. I already realize like, oh, I'm not in my 20s anymore. Like there are things I could do in my 20s or my teens that I can't do now. Like, there are all kinds of ways that your life is limited as a woman as you get older from people telling you how to do your hair and what clothes you can wear and there are ways in which you are limited by it and I think you see it in Hollywood too there are actresses you just don't see much anymore they don't do a lot of roles they had a whole lot more roles when they were in their 20s and 30s and now that they're in their 40s 50s 60s you don't see them as much so for women who depend on their looks like they do with acting it can definitely affect your career and that's why Myrtle is so sensitive about it is because she's dependent on her face she's dependent on her body she's dependent on what she looks like and she's dependent on men desiring her because when she's up on that stage as a woman it's about her desirability to the audience her desirability from the actors and the directors. That matters. Her sex appeal, her vitality, her youthfulness matter. Like all of those things matter to an actress and it affects what roles she gets and all kinds of things like that. So Myrtle wants to say age doesn't matter, but she knows it does. She's already scared of playing grandmothers and mothers. And that's what tends to happen to actresses is that they they end up playing 
those roles where they're just a wife or a mother and they get five lines in the film. A lot of women don't get to have the careers of like Robert De Niro and Al Pacino as they get older and getting all kinds of amazing roles that they get to play. So I think these scenes between Sarah Good and Myrtle are very interesting because these two women have very different views about aging. Sarah is older. Sarah's in her 60s and she sees it as painful. And, and in her character of Virginia, Virginia wants things and she wants to fall in love but she feels like her time has passed and that that's not possible for her anymore. And Myrtle resists that. Myrtle wants to see aging as not a big deal. You know, she's only in her mid forties and she doesn't want to think that she's going to be limited by it. She still feels beautiful and vital and energetic and desirable. And she still feels all of those things in her forties. She doesn't feel any of those negative things like the character. And so she's scared that if she plays the character very well, that people will believe her and they will think she's old. That's her real fear. Right. And that's what comes out in the scenes with Sarah Good is that she is scared about aging and she's scared about playing an aging character in a way that people believe she's old and they see her as old and that's not how she wants to be seen by people. Now I want to talk about Myrtle and Nancy, the dead girl. This was such a crucial part of the film for me. I love, love, love this part of the film. I don't think it would be the same film without Nancy. I think she's a really important element to all of this. When he was writing the film, Cassavetti actually started with the idea of the fan. The encounter with the fan, her subsequent death, how the girl reminds Myrtle of who she used to be. So that was his jumping off point for the script and for the film. The death of her fan, of Nancy, is one of the things that shakes her. And it was the description of this fan's death in, in the film synopsis that drew me to the film. I don't know a lot of you if you remember Hulu in the early 2010s, but the Criterion Collection used to be on Hulu. I don't know if anybody remembers this. This is how I watched a lot of art house films when I was first becoming a cinephile in 2011 and 2012. So opening night was on Hulu from what I can remember. And I remember reading the description and it mentioned, I think, this fan and her dying and Myrtle witnessing this. And I was so compelled by that. I was just drawn to the film. I had never watched a Cassavetes before. As y'all know, this was my first Cassavetes. And I just needed to watch this film after reading that description. So it was really Nancy who drew me to the film. I was compelled by this idea that an actress would see the death of one of her fans and how that affected her psychologically. I think that's what attracted me to this film and I wanted to know, well, what happens? How does this actress handle seeing her fan die right in front of her? So Jenna Rollins in an interview says that she thinks Nancy is in Myrtle's imagination, that Myrtle creates her. And she says that throughout the film Myrtle is the only one that sees the girl. She's the one that calls the police about it. No one else seems to have seen Nancy except for Myrtle. So she thinks that it's all a figment of Myrtle's imagination. And that seems to be somewhat of the consensus from a few things that I read online that Nancy never really existed. That she didn't even die in front of her. That Myrtle just imagined it 
and she was starting to have, I guess, this break with reality. And I don't know what I believe. I mean, in my mind, Nancy was real because there's a scene in the film where Myrtle goes to the, like the wake or she goes to the apartment where the family of Nancy is mourning her and they're very upset that Myrtle's arrived. Remember? They're like, if you had a child, you wouldn't be here right now because Myrtle is the reason that Nancy is dead. Nancy idolized Myrtle, right? So... I'm not sure how we explain that scene. Would it be Myrtle just making up that? I don't know. I think I tend to want to believe that Nancy was a real person and that witnessing her death, her real death, is partly what precipitates Myrtle's breakdown is that one of her fans dies right in front of her and she dies because she's pursuing Myrtle. She's obsessed with Myrtle and she's losing herself. She's so obsessed with this actress. Like I said earlier, actresses lose themselves in roles and we as fans can lose ourselves in these actresses, in these celebrities, right? We can identify with them and connect to them and become so obsessed with them. I guess I want to believe that Nancy was real that she was a real girl who was in love with Myrtle Gordon and and idolized her and went to her plays and saw all of her films and that she unfortunately died in the rain being hit by a car because she was so overcome by meeting Myrtle. I don't know. I guess I guess other people want to believe that she hallucinated the death of Nancy. I don't know if I believe that. I think in my mind, Nancy really existed. Now, yes, throughout the film, when Nancy appears to Myrtle in the dressing room and at the house of the spiritualist, yeah, obviously, Myrtle's making all of that up. But I don't know if I subscribe to the idea that Nancy never existed. I I don't know what the consensus is about it because she does go to where the people are mourning Nancy. And so to me... I guess I like to believe that she was real at some point. I don't know. That's my interpretation. But Jenna thinks that, you know, she never existed at all. And all of it was created in in, in the mind of, of Myrtle. And that she created this girl as like a symbol of youth. And she used her in order to access the character for the play. And Jenna, in that same interview, she said that it's dangerous to try to recapture what you had when you were young. That really stayed with me. Like, I never thought about it that way. That it's dangerous to try to recapture what you had when you were young. I think that's fascinating. Because I get lost in my nostalgia. Like, I get really overwhelmed by nostalgia. Of wanting to go back. Wanting to be a teenager again. Or even younger than that. It keeps me from being able to live in this moment. And in this life. And to appreciate what I have right now. You can't have the past back. You can't can't have all those things again. And so I think it it can be dangerous. So near the beginning of the film, Myrtle is leaving the theater and she's mobbed by all these fans wanting photographs. And there's one young woman in particular who's obsessed with her and that's Nancy. She says she loves her. She hugs her and it starts to rain, but she follows Myrtle to her car and she's standing outside of it. I still remember her hand touching the window. And it was fascinating to me in this scene how the rain-soaked window starts to distort her face and her hands. And 
it's as though Nancy is dissolving. Like she's not this fully formed person. Like she's lost herself in this obsession with Myrtle. She has no self. She has no form. And then as she's running after the car, she gets hit by another vehicle and dies. This is a catalyst in many ways, this scene. Whether it's imagined in Myrtle's mind or it really happened. It is the catalyst of the film for her breakdown, her descent into a kind of insanity and madness. And it also starts her visions of Nancy that she has throughout the film. Her first vision of Nancy is when she's in her dressing room and she's in there alone and it's very quiet and all of a sudden Nancy is there and she appears and Myrtle's looking at her. She even, they put their hands up and touch hands. The girl looks like her younger twin and so it's certainly possible that Myrtle has imagined all of this. That in fact Nancy is just a younger version of herself or is her teenage self and it would connect to what she says at the beginning of the film where she says that when she was 18 her emotions were on the surface and she was better able to access them but now it's becoming harder. It's absolutely possible that she has simply projected her teenage self outward, you know, into the room, into this vision of this this girl that she sees over and over. And this girl may never have existed and never have been real. So it is certainly possible. The girl looks just like her, but younger has the same blonde hair and pale skin, same face structure. Myrtle truly believes that she is seeing her. In the scene, someone knocks on the door and that breaks the reverie, I guess, or the daydream that she's having of this girl. She looks briefly at herself, Myrtle does, in this cracked handheld mirror. And I thought that was such a fascinating image that when she looks in that mirror, it has a crack in it. When I saw her looking in the mirror, it it holds such powerful meaning, right, for women, a mirror. And the way we see ourselves, the way other people see us. I thought that scene was really interesting and it reminded me of a poem by Sylvia Plath. And I recently read Sylvia Plath's collected poems. This has been a very powerful experience for me because when I first read Sylvia Plath I was 16 years old so it's been really intense to revisit her work. I've read individual collections like Ariel and Crossing the Water and the restored edition of Ariel and the Colossus so I've certainly read almost all of her poetry collections but I had never read them collected and in chronological order and it was intense to do that. At night I would read a few poems just by myself in my room in the middle of the night reading these poems and I was just astonished by what she wrote, especially beginning in 1960. That's when she really started to write the poetry that she's known for. She died when she was 30. I don't know how to put it into words, but it was very overwhelming this year when I turned 31 because I thought about Plath and I thought about how she didn't make it to 31. She only made it to 30 and then she committed suicide, as we know. It was just strange. I don't know how to put it where for half my life, this woman has been with me. Her poetry has been there with me. I read it after my father died 
when I was 16. I would read her poetry and I would weep. And I remember when I heard her voice for the first time, my dad for the actually the Christmas before he died, he, he died in May of 2006. And for the Christmas of 2005, he got me this book of poetry that came with three CDs. And on those CDs were various poets reading their poetry. There was Anne Sexton and all kinds of people. And Sylvia Plath was one of them. And she was reading Daddy and Lady Lazarus. Those are the two poems that I first read by her that absolutely set me on fire and obsessed me from the moment I read them. And that's how I got interested in her. And I remember putting that CD on in 2005. (laughs) You know, this teenage girl I was, I heard her voice for the first time ever. And I cried. I just cried when I heard her voice because these poems had only ever existed in my mind. So when I, so when I read these collected poems of hers now at this age and thought of myself as a teenager, the way Myrtle thinks about herself as a teenager and thinks about her youth, thinking about who I was, the girl I was, what that poetry meant to me. Then after my father's death, this catastrophe that happened in my life. And Sylvia Plath also lost her father when she was, I think, eight years old. Her father died. So I feel a connection with her for that reason as well. And thinking, I didn't know if I'd make it to 30. I didn't know if I would make it to 30 because of how broken and shattered I was and how the last... 14 years have been such a struggle and so much suffering of what I've been through. All the loss and all the grief and the mental illness and the breaking apart of my life and myself that has happened in over a decade. And I didn't know if I would survive it. I didn't know if I would survive to 30, if I would make it to that. And here I am, I'm past the age that Plath was when she killed herself. And I thought of that. I don't know, other people don't really think about stuff like that. I don't know why I think about these things. But I I crossed that distance. I have survived. I have made it to this. I wanted to go back to those poems and I wanted to go back to her because of what she meant to me and who I was when I found her and how finding her changed me and made me who I am today. I just, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but reading her poems every night, it just, you almost feel like she's in the room with you when you read the, some of those poems and they are just electric and ferocious. I don't know how she did it. I came across a poem called Mirror. I think it's pretty well known. And she wrote it in 1961, actually. And when I reread it recently, this was before I even watched Opening Night, but when I reread it, it resonated with me because I'm older now and because I've been thinking about aging and been thinking about getting older and thinking about my looks and, and struggling with my looks and struggling with not being beautiful and all of those things, which I've struggled with my entire life. But I think that this poem mirror, it it relates to opening night. And when I saw Jenna holding that mirror, that cracked mirror and looking at herself in it while she's going through this crisis, I just felt like it was the perfect poem. This is my second Plath poem on this podcast. The other one I read was Pursuit. 
in my episode on the Night of the Hunter. So I love injecting poetry into this podcast because all of you know that I love literature. That's my background. Many of you know that my degree is in literature. So I always love when I can have my little poetry reading on this podcast. So I'm going to read Mirror by Sylvia Plath. I am silver and exact. I have no preconceptions. Whatever I see, I swallow immediately, just as it is, unmisted by love or dislike. I am not cruel, only truthful. The eye of a little god, four-cornered. Most of the time, I meditate on the opposite wall. It is pink with speckles. I have looked at it so long, I think it is a part of my heart. But it flickers. Faces and darkness separate us over and over. Now I am a lake. A woman bends over me, searching my reaches for what she really is. Then she turns to those liars, the candles or the moon. I see her back and reflect it faithfully. She rewards me with tears and an agitation of hands. I am important to her. She comes and goes. Each morning it is her face that replaces the darkness. In me she has drowned a young girl and in me an old woman rises toward her day after day like a terrible fish. So that's Mirror by Sylvia Plath. I love that imagery of drowning a young girl in the mirror and then the face of an old woman surfacing day after day. And I think that is at the heart of Myrtle's existential crisis is that girl she was and that girl that she can't be again. She's getting older, right? We are all getting older. There's no way to reverse it. There's no way to stop it. We are all hurtling inevitably toward death. That's terrifying to think about. And we're reminded of it when we age. We're reminded of it when we see it in our face. The way Cassavetes talked about earlier. Like, who's this? Who is this person? Inside, you feel like a teenager. Inside, you feel like you're 20. But then you look at your face in the mirror and you think, who is that? And I've always had trouble connecting with my face and my body. I've always felt very unreal. I've always felt dissociated associated from myself or disembodied almost. And a big part of the work I've been trying to do is to connect with my body, connect with myself. I've taken more selfies so that I look at my face and see what I look like because for so much of my life I've avoided mirrors. I haven't wanted to look at myself. I haven't wanted to see myself. I haven't wanted to know what I looked like. And the last year or so I've been really trying to take selfies and to look at myself and face myself and connect with that image that I see. I mean I have this very intense memory from high school. When the classes would change in high school, I had really bad anxiety and social anxiety and the hallways would get really full with people. I would get scared and I would get anxious about it. So I would go in the bathroom and I would wait until people cleared out of the hallways. And I remember this day I was in the bathroom. It was like after biology class too. It's so random how I remember that. And I was looking at myself in the mirror I had like my backpack on and I was looking at myself in the mirror and I could not connect with what I saw in the mirror. I couldn't connect with that girl. I couldn't believe that was me. I didn't feel any connection to her, but that was me. But I didn't understand it. I didn't understand what I was seeing or looking at. So when Myrtle says, 
she lost the reality of the reality. When she is disintegrating, when she has lost contact and connection with herself, I get that. And I've felt that of like, who is this? Who am I? I don't know. And that memory just stays with me even now. I mean, I was like 15 years old probably. And I was looking in the mirror and I could not understand who I was. I couldn't connect with that image and with what was reflecting back to me. It made no sense to be a body, (laughs) to be a face and a body. I've never connected to it. I've just always felt more immaterial, I guess. Like I always felt like I was just made of art or something. Like I was made of films and poems and words and I I could never connect with my body and I've been trying to do that. The mirror is like a tyrant in our lives, especially for women. And I hate it. We are so ruled by what appears in that mirror. You know, Myrtle tells people about the fact that she's seeing this dead girl. She says that she's a figment, a fantasy, a way for her to imagine what it's like to be young again. So to me, it contradicts what she said earlier when she said the age doesn't matter. It does. She's already imagining what it was like to be younger. And I do think the role in the play has her questioning her own experience of getting older, what it means for her career and how she sees herself and how others see her. Myrtle insists that she can control it. She can make this girl appear or disappear. And of course, people think she's just nutty. They think she's lost it. They Sarah tries to take her to a spiritualist at one point, but Myrtle leaves. She doesn't want to do it. And at one point when Myrtle and Sarah are talking in some scene, Sarah says, the young girl in us is important. And I think she's referring to Myrtle seeing Nancy, you know, seeing those visions. The young girl in us is important. And you know, I think of the young girl in me and how connected I still feel to her, how I don't want to let go of her, how I can't let go of her. And I didn't have much of a youth because my dad got sick when I was around 13 and then he died when I was 16. And so once I became a teenager, my life was just so sad and devastating and lonely. I mean, I I think back about, I think back at those times and I just, I just see so much darkness. I do. I see so much darkness and I feel like my youth, I didn't have a youth. That's what I feel. I feel like my youth was wasted on grief and mental illness and fear and pain. I feel robbed of my youth. I feel mad that I didn't get to to enjoy it. I didn't get to have all those normal experiences that you have. I was just alone and terrified, except for my mom, of course. I had my mom, but I didn't have a whole lot else. I wish I could go back and relive those years and have more joy and happiness and really enjoy being young, (laughs) but I didn't get to have that. I didn't get to have it at all. And so I agree the young girl in us is important. That is important to me. And maybe I do hold on to her too much, but I want to protect her. I mean, I still wish that I could go back and save her. I wish I could be there for her the way nobody else was. I wish I could make her feel loved and important. And I guess that's what I'm trying to do now at 31. I'm trying to make up for all the years that I just, that I gave up. 
I just let so much control me and overwhelm me and I don't want to be that person anymore. Like I want to live. Like this pandemic has been so scary and it's just made me want to live. And this year I've I've started to fight for myself as I said and I just want to live and I want to be happy and I want some of my dreams to come true and I want good things to happen to me and I want to accept those good things. Like sometimes when good things happen to me, I don't know how to handle it. I don't know because I'm not used to it but I want those things you know I want to be happy and I want to live so in Myrtle's apartment I guess it's more of like a penthouse at the hotel where they're staying there's this scene where Myrtle's looking for Nancy and then Nancy suddenly appears and they're fighting each other like Nancy's almost become more like a demon Myrtle's not able to let go of her youth to her attachment to youth and what that represents desirability beauty better acting parts she has to let go of it she has to let go of this dead girl the girl she was Because that's the thing. The girl she was is dead. That teenager is dead. She is not that teenager anymore. She will never be that teenager ever again. She'll never look like that again. She'll never be that girl again. And when I saw this scene of her fighting her, it's just so visceral, right? It's a very visceral scene. I started to feel so many things. And I, I realized that I was holding on to that girl, right? To that teenage girl that I wanted to be again or I want to go back and it's like I need to let go of that too I need to let go of my childhood or not let go of it but I don't know I don't know how to put this into words like we can never fully let go I don't think like your childhood is always part of you but I have to let go of this obsession with it I guess or this desire to go back to it because it's not possible and I was just realizing all of this when I was watching the film I need to deal with this I need to face this I need to let let it go because it's dangerous like Jenna said it's dangerous to try to have what you once had when you were young. I realized these things as I was watching the film and I actually tweeted something and I wanted to share the tweet and I wanted to expand on it. Sometimes I do this on Twitter. I don't know why I do, but sometimes I just share random thoughts. And I, I said this, it's very powerful when you realize things about yourself as you're watching a film. Something will crystallize perfectly. This tends to happen for me with the more emotional directors like Bergman or Cassavetes. I have these epiphanies and revelations that change my life. This is why I do the podcast, to share these revelations, to dig deeper into them and into myself. So that was my original tweet. I've thought more about it and sometimes you don't realize how much you need a film until you actually watch it and it comes at just the right time in your life and that's how I feel about revisiting opening night. Working on these episodes can be very emotional sometimes. It can be a very cathartic and cleansing experience. I almost feel clean sometimes when I talk about certain things. Talking about these things helps me understand them better and understand myself better and understand what I truly feel. It's like I'm expelling some of these emotions from me and I'm verbalizing them in a way that makes them comprehensible to me. Instead of them just being 
these chaotic feelings inside of me, I'm able to put them into words. That's why writing is so powerful for me is that I'm able to put these feelings into words and it's like I'm purging something. I'm saying something that needs to be said. I'm putting something into language that up until this point was unspeakable and a film can help me do that. A film helps me do that sometimes when it comes into my life at the perfect time and opening night did. It's made me think about my youth and my childhood. It's made me think about my own feelings about aging, how uncomfortable I feel about it, how I feel this sense of like an expiration date. I also think when you turn 30 as a woman, sometimes you think about children. You think about fertility. I mean, when I was in my 20s, I never thought about having kids. Like that never entered my mind. And then when I hit 30, I was like, oh, if I did want kids, I have less time to do it. Like I started to think about these things and I never thought about them. I don't know. I've just been thinking about so many things lately and some of it's connected to turning 30 and just thinking about mortality and thinking about I'm getting older and thinking about my skin and my face and my body and my health and just thinking about all these things in a way it's destabilized me. The way that it destabilized Myrtle to have to think about it, to have to think about aging and how she'll be treated because she's getting older, what it means to be old. And I know I'm only 31. I know I'm not in my 40s. I know I'm not old, right? I get that. But I'm saying all these things came to the surface when I turned 30, things I had never thought about before. Watching opening night has had me digging deeper into some of those feelings that I started to have when I turned 30. Things that I never thought about before. Thinking about like, oh, there's this expiration date on me or one day I'm not going to be young. One day I'm not going to be youthful. You know, just like crazy stuff like that. And I'm a feminist and I'm... (laughs) I don't want to care about things like that. I don't want to care what I look like or if I'm desirable or having children. I don't want to be defined by having children or having a husband or, you know, but then I got to thinking, well, what if I do want a family? What if, what if I wanted that and I never thought about wanting it? Or what What am I going to do as I get older and I'm alone? Like that has really hit me too is like I'm so alone. I'm like Myrtle in that way where I am alone except for my mom of course. But what does it mean for me to get older and to be by myself? And how do I feel about that? How do I feel about being single? What do I feel about love and romance and all these things that I had not really thought about? Finding this film or not finding it but refinding it, rediscovering it, re watching it just brought all that to the surface for me and then Myrtle goes back to that spiritualist and she's in the home of the spiritualist when Nancy appears again and Nancy has this monologue where she says you want to kill me I devoted my life to you to movies to music the theater I'm 17 years old I like sex I like to turn people on and that's what the theater is it's sex it's like getting laid I'm not afraid of you. You're an older woman. You're frightened and you're a coward. This girl is saying it all. (laughs) And she is like the teenage Myrtle. She's all the things that Myrtle was. She's all the things that Myrtle wants to be. Myrtle wants to be sexy. She wants to be desirable. She wants people to want her. She wants the audience to want her. She wants to matter and be important and be vivacious and be young and beautiful. 
Nancy's not going down without a fight and we see Myrtle start to hit her. Myrtle has to kill her because holding on to her, holding on to Nancy is what is holding Myrtle back. It's what's killing Myrtle. She has to kill Nancy. I sort of took from this of if you hold on to the past like this, you can't progress. You can't move forward. You can't be in your life right now. You're chained. You're chained to the past. That's what I think this obsession with youth becomes. This obsession with looking young, being young. First of all, it's impossible, right? Second of all, it chains you to the past. It chains you to this version of yourself that you can't be again. Because you can't reverse time and you can't go back to your 17-year-old self with your 17-year-old body and your 17-year-old skin. And women feel that. You know, we feel like we're in our prime or whatever when we're teenagers or we're in our 20s and there's a sell-by date right? And then once you, once you're in your thirties or your forties, you're over the hill. You're no longer attractive. You're no longer worthwhile. It's so ridiculous to think that, right? And, but that's what we're told. Like you're only beautiful when you're young. You're only worthwhile when you're young. You only matter when you're beautiful and young. And that's what we hear from the time that we're little girls. That's all we hear. So of course we're terrified of getting older. But if you hold on to the past and your youth, you're chained to it. You're not really free. There's a lack of freedom in that, I think, because you're always pursuing youth. You're always pursuing looking young. You're always pursuing getting rid of the wrinkles and looking perfect and all of that and fitting the standard that you can never fit anymore. And it is, it takes away your freedom. I really feel that when you are so chained to the past and you can't let it go. And then I think Myrtle says something like, is she dead? She had to kill her. Like she had to kill this demon that Nancy had become for her. And then the opening night comes and really the whole film is building to it. Myrtle goes to see Maurice like the night before and she wants them to turn it upside down. She wants them to find something human in this play because she hates it. She hates the lack of hope. She hates the lack of, of humanity in it. And of course she shows up drunk. It's an epic, epic ending where she is falling down drunk. And we often talk about men having a midlife crisis, but it seems to me in this film, it's about a woman having a midlife crisis, a crisis of self, of confidence, of understanding who she is, a woman falling apart, almost destroying herself. Is she reborn? She kills Nancy and you think that once she has exercised this demon and once she's killed Nancy that she'll be able to do the play and instead she's she's self-sabotaging herself, I think. She wants to fail at this part. She doesn't want to play an old woman successfully because that means she's old. That means she is the thing she fears. So she self-sabotages. She doesn't connect with the play or the woman she's playing and I think her drinking is a manifestation of that. I mean, throughout the film, Jenna has given an amazing performance and she does at the end here when she's pretending to be drunk. She's stumbling. It's painful to watch. You think there's no way she's going to get through this play, but she digs deep and she goes out on stage and she makes it work. And also it's a testament to the people around her, the people who are carrying her, helping her through it, getting her dressed. They are the ones that help her as well. And then we see Myrtle and Maurice in that final scene 
from what I read, according to Jenna, that final scene of them on stage was completely improvised on stage between John and Jenna. And that audience was real. It was made up of extras. It wasn't made up of professional actors or anything. They were people who really showed up and wanted to see the play. And John and Jenna were just up there doing their thing, (laughs) you know, and just being silly and being absurd. And they go off script completely. They're not doing the play the way Sarah wrote it anymore. They're just doing what they want to do. It's There's an anarchy about it. There's a rebellion about it. Um, They're rebelling against a play that they don't like and that they don't respect and that they don't believe in. And they're replacing it with their ad libs and their monologue and their improvisation. That's what they want to do. And so that's what they do. So there's a lot of life in this film. There's a lot of vitality in this film. It has twists and turns. It's unpredictable at times. Like there's, (laughs) there's this girl appearing and then all of a sudden Myrtle kills her. And I mean, so we have ghosts and we have the theater and we have (laughs) so much going on in this film. It was my first Cassavetes. It's my favorite Cassavetes and it always will be because of this character of Myrtle. A woman who is complicated. A woman who's falling apart. But also a woman who has has a lot of strength at the same time. Like, yes, she gets drunk. Yes, she has a breakdown. Yes, she falls apart. But in that opening night, she goes out there and she digs deep into herself and gets through it. So she's a tenacious character at the same time. She doesn't believe in the play. She doesn't agree with the premise of the play that a woman's life is over when she's in her 40s. And I think in a way, Myrtle wants to rewrite that narrative. And maybe she was a feminist without realizing that she was and maybe she was a woman ahead of her time in that she says no I'm in my 40s and I still desire and I'm still desirable and I have a vital career and I get amazing roles and I don't need a husband to come home to and I don't need kids I feel emotionally fulfilled I have a life that I love and she doesn't want all of that to be taken away just because she turns 50 or because she gets older and she shouldn't lose any of those things just because she gets older. So also in Myrtle, I think she's bothered by aging, but she's bothered by what society places on a woman's age. I think that's what makes her mad too. It's like, hey, I'm not going through menopause. I don't have hot flashes. I'm not some stereotypical mom or grandma. You know, I'm in my 40s and I'm still vivacious and full of life. I still have a lot of living to do and a lot of things I want to do. I shouldn't be held back. I shouldn't be limited. That's her anger too. That's her fury too. And I think maybe she's mad at Sarah for writing a character who just collapses and believes what society thinks about her and her age. And she doesn't kick and scream and fight it. She doesn't have the tenacity to fight back against it. She just gives in and says, well, I'm older, so everything's over for me and life is over for me and I'll never be in love and it's all too late for me. Myrtle hates that about the character. She doesn't believe that. She doesn't, that's not valid to her. Myrtle wants to reject those expectations that when you're a woman of a certain age, your life is over and you might as well just give up and 
you're going to be a lonely old spinster and you don't matter anymore. Myrtle doesn't buy that narrative. She doesn't live that narrative. She doesn't believe in it. Myrtle still has her glamorous, exciting, interesting life. And so of course she can't connect with a character like that. But it doesn't mean that women like that don't exist, that women don't struggle with aging, just like Myrtle struggles with it. The more she denies it, you know, the stronger it becomes that aging does matter. She doesn't want it to matter. It shouldn't matter, but it does. I mean, it's such an interesting film. I hope that you liked my discussion of it. And I just, I love the character of Myrtle. I love how this film looks at aging and and looks at all of these issues. And I think I'm most compelled by Nancy, by the, the apparition of Nancy, the figment of Nancy, what she represents, what she symbolizes. And I think for a lot of us, especially women, maybe we all have our Nancy. We all have that girl that we were that teenage girl, that version of ourselves. And maybe we're too attached to her and maybe we hold on to her too much. And maybe we long for our childhood or our youth too much. When it becomes a demon, when it becomes something that controls us, maybe we have to find a way to cut ties or to kill that in us or to purge it from us so that we can move forward and live our lives as we are and love and accept ourselves for who we are are now at the age, whatever age that may be now, and to believe that we have worth and value no matter how old we are, no matter what our age is. And we have things to contribute to this world as women. Age should not define us and it shouldn't hold us back. So I feel like the film really helped me think about this stuff and interrogate it, look at it in a different way. And I think it's really helped me. And sometimes we need films like that. And sometimes films just hit us at a certain time in our lives. They crystallize things for us and we come to know ourselves better almost, or we come to a revelation. And it's a fascinating part of being a cinephile for me. It doesn't happen with every film that I watch, but with this one, it did, where when I really that I was holding on to the past too much and that holding on to the past is paralyzing me. It is paralyzing me. I am frozen in that teenage girl. I'm, I'm frozen in that time in my life when my father died and when so much happened. And I think the struggle for me is to break out of that, is to free myself from that somehow and to become who I need to be, to not be that girl anymore or to hold so tightly onto her while still trying to honor her. I don't know. These are just things I'm thinking about. I hope you liked my episode. I've gone on long enough. I'll stop here. I'd like to give a big shout out to my wonderful patrons, Travis, Pierce, Amir, Christine, David, Eddie, Jenny, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Tyler, Juan, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Paulina, Olivia, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you all so much for being patrons. You make the podcast possible. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.